Barca are the champions, everyone. Breaking news from Cologne a month ago. Sorry for the delay in getting a podcast out to you. We'll talk a little bit about the EHF Final Four in Cologne, a bit about the Olympics coming up next week as well, and the Beach Handball Euro, where I, Chris O'Reilly, am currently at in Bulgaria. We have Alex Kulash on the line as well. How are you, Alex? How are you, Chris? And Brian Campion, who was in Cologne what probably feels like four or five months ago now, but was just a month ago. How are you doing, Brian? Not too bad. Yeah, it does really seem like a very, very long time ago already. I don't know why exactly, but all seems a bit dreamlike, uh, those two final fours. Yeah, I suppose with the the focus has been the football uh, championship for the last month. So uh, we, we took the chance to take a little break. And it just made me realise how tough it must be for the players. Because... After the final four, after watching all that handball, we did a few podcasts. We were kind of all pretty mentally tired, kind of a bit exhausted. And then these players that played the final four went straight into Olympic training camps and playing more games and will be playing and then will go into the season. So um, you have to applaud these absolute machines of handball players and how they do it. Even Razzis Boyson took a two-week break from tweeting that's that's how exhausted everyone was <laughs> yeah we're, we're exhausted from talking well, about it never mind these guys are playing it <laughs> <laughs> we will touch on the the final four briefly and talk about the groups for next season which were drawn last week uh, brian you were there in cologne um, what were your impressions of it now that it's a month past yeah i mean it was only really good memories to be honest um and some really interesting moments <clears throat> which we didn't have at other final fours like the celebrations on the roof afterwards were very cinematic and uh i really enjoyed that that was something that was a, a bit of an extra special touch and it was it was nice to see my prediction finally come true that i predicted Barca at the start of the season if i remember correctly and uh here you go finally got one thing right Do you know only took about four seasons but there you go i know but it was a great event some fans there which was a nice touch because I think people were worried that there was going to be absolutely nobody there, but a few at least. And um, Budapest was obviously felt a lot more full, if you want to say it like that. So that really felt like a closer to the other final fours we've been at. But uh, it was nice to see at least some fans were able to make it to the to Cologne. Because an empty hall for that would have been a bit painful. And I, th- I don't think it's worth going into like the the ins and outs of the games. But just one mention: Barca did win it in the end, and. I guess you could say it was a bit anticlimactic beating Alborg in the final as comfortably as they did, but Alborg had already did something special that weekend by beating PSG. They managed to pull off the big shock of the weekend, which everyone kind of half expected something like that to happen. Uh, and it was Alborg beating PSG in that semi-final. Yeah, uh, it was It was a huge shock. Really didn't see it happening um, at all. It looked like it was set up for that PSG versus final. PSG started really well, but Alborg just did did what they keep doing in the competition and 
that is fighting back, never giving up, and got that win. And, and at the end, they were just exhausted in that final. Um, this is an all boy team that also, what was it? They played five key games, so semi-final and final games. They played five of them within 10 days because they had the Danish League finals, then the uh, Champions League, and then they had the Danish Cup, which they lost the Cup, actually, and you could see that um, in the final. They were just, they had nothing left in them. So um, really amazing from this all-war team, an amazing story, but clearly Barcelona were the best team in the world this year, by far. Yeah. It is nice that they won it, finally. I mean, it hasn't been that long since 2015, but it's felt like because they've come so close over the years that it was a long time waiting. And a lot of changes coming up to this squad as well with Javi Pascual leaving and a bunch of the elder statesmen leaving or retiring as well. Uh, and that makes looking at next season's competition in the groups uh, very, very interesting, particularly seeing as uh, Group B, which is the heavy group, I think it's fair to say, with PSG, Barca, Porto, Kielce, Flensburg, Vesprem, uh, Dinamo Bucharesti and Motor Zaporozhye all in together. So Javi Pascual's first task uh, with Dinamo Bucharesti after taking over is facing probably seven of the ten best teams in the Champions League in the group phase. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible to think that he's going from the almost perfect season where they looked untouchable to now in the complete opposite role where... If he picks up any wins at all, it would be quite spectacular. Um, it wasn't an almost perfect season. It was the perfect season. They won every <laughs> single game. No, yes, you're right. Oh, actually, did I say well, almost? To, well, to be fair, almost perfect because they did lose last year's final four in the middle of the season. Yeah. So technically, True, it counts yeah. within this year. That would have been perfect. But you know, sixty wins from sixty games. It's 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 actually out of this world that. Um, that can happen. Yeah, but it's going to be very interesting to see now. A lot of people, when you're giving praise to Xavi Pascal over the years, a lot of people, you used to get some voices saying, yeah, well, look, all the money they have and the players and the resources and the facilities. And I think a lot of people are excited to see how he will do with Dynamo over the next few seasons to see what kind of coach he really is. And I mean, I'm not doubting him at all. Don't get me wrong here. But it's just going to be interesting to see him in the complete opposite role and to see what, how Barcelona are going to look like now under Carlos Ortega. And will they be as dominant early in the season? Like we've seen Barcelona teams of the past. We almost take it for granted that Barcelona steamroll teams early and early midway through the season maybe have struggled then at final fours. But it's going to be interesting. What, what's their blueprint going to be like from here on out? I think that's uh, exciting for me anyway. If this Barca team in the group phase next season can beat PSG, Porto, Kielce, Flensburg and Vesprem all away from home, I'll be very, very impressed. I'm not sure it's going to be as dominant. And it's a super exciting group, isn't it? You got to feel bad for Motor, I think, in particular, seeing as they are one of the emerging teams and uh, they've been thrown in there with a very, very difficult situation. I guess there's no point in going into like predictions so early into the season, but it's hard to see them break into the top six with a group like that. Even a team like Porto as well, that could look all of a sudden very average in a group with such heavyweights, you know, because we're used to them getting good results and kind of mid-table. And it'd be very difficult to see the mid-table here. They'd more likely maybe third from bottom, but uh, so it could be a, a tough season for them also. 
Yeah, I think Porto, they haven't had a great summer so far because, of course, they lost Andre Gomes, but also Miguel Martins, two of their best players, um, and they haven't really replaced them um, yet. Uh, I, I don't know if there's anything in the works, but they, what they've done is extended contracts of their other key players like Branquinho, Area, and kind of solidified the squad they have, but I see them taking a step down uh, again, potentially this season. Mm. And one player that I just thought that Porto really missed out on was um, Eurodolis, who left um, Barcelona and ended up in Le Mans. Great signing for Le Mans. But doesn't he just like fit that Porto team? Would he not just... And they've always kind of struggled with their right-back position as well. He just would have, um, or I think he would have fit in perfectly. Um, but yeah, I, I see him taking a step back. But going back to kind of Dino Bucharesti, I think there's potential of um, something happening, the same thing that happened in Zeged, where um, Pastor came in there and kind of built this team up with a kind of bottom-up methodology, changed everything, and Zeged are now kind of established um, big, they're an established big team in the Champions League. I can see a similar trajectory for Dino Bucharesti with um, Xavi Pascual coming in, really, you know, revolutionising the club, um, thinking long-term, and they have to commit to him long-term. I think that's probably what they promised him, and I, I, I can't see him um, not taking that challenge and building him. He, he brought over Sarando um, with him, as well as his son, uh, Alex Pascal, which are pretty good signings for him. Then kind of Dissinger and Rakotea coming in as well. So not a bad summer for Progressi, so I, I expect some good things from and over in Group A, we have Seged, Kiel, Vardar, Alborg, Brest, Montpellier, Zagreb, and Elverum. Looks like Seged, Kiel, Alborg, Brest, Montpellier will have a, a fairly handy time just battling, well, handy time qualifying and then battling among themselves for the, the top spots, which uh, it looks like a lot. These teams will all take points off each other, uh, it feels. And then Zagreb, Elverum, and Vardar then battling for that sixth spot. Seged, you mentioned there, they really excited me with some of their transfers. Miguel Martins, Alexander Blontz, not going for the necessarily the established 27, 28, 29-year-olds, going for some of the younger players and looking to build up for the future, which I think is a different different step for Seged and says a lot about what they're looking for in the future. It's uh, it's very exciting, I think, time for, for Zeged. Um, and I'd probably... F- I'd, it's between, obviously, Demet Kiel to top the group, and I might fancy... Zeged to do because as a from what I'm reading, I think Kiel haven't made any signings yet. Is that correct? Yeah, they haven't. Yeah, yeah, which is an unusual move. It's quite strange. And actually, just one thing to mention about um, Kiel, but also kind of sorry to move on from Zeged, but that what you mentioned about signings, we we saw for German clubs, they have really thin squads. Um, Kiel and Flensburg have really suffered this season from the the long season and they have had to resort to just all of this weird stuff in Germany like 
signing 44 year old goalkeepers like uh, Matthias Anderson and uh, Fritz coming back in Germany as well at the age of 47 or something, wasn't it? Um, for Flensburg, yeah. For Flensburg. Then, you know, signing Bevan Calvert for the short stems. And what is the story in Germany? Like, why don't they just have decent youth teams that they can pluck from? You know, that, that's what happens in France and kind of everywhere. Um, every top club have some sort of youth team to just pick a player. You know, if you want a right winger, just get that right winger and you'll fit in. Uh, I mean, both, both Flensburg and Kiel have uh, younger teams in the third league. So they have full squads of players to choose from. I, I don't know why they're not using them. Yeah, it's a good question. It just, it just doesn't really make sense. And, you know, we saw, let's say, a team like Nantes use their youth players yeah. really effectively. And they've now transitioned into the team. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case in Germany. There's no youth transition into the top clubs. Um, that's something that Fix Berlin are trying to do, um, I believe this year. But, um, it just, it just seems really strange. And seeing Kiel not make any signings so far. Um, of course, they'll get someone like, uh, Nico Bilic back next season, which is kind of like a signing. But mm. that, those squads are very thin. And, um, it, it just, it just seems strange that uh, teams have to resort to these strange mechanisms to fill out a squad. You said there that uh, it's between Sagan and Kiel. Are you, are you ruling out Alborg again, Brian? Oh, yeah, God. I should, I should watch my words, shouldn't I? <laughs> especially, especially with Aaron, Aaron Parmesan uh, coming in this season. They actually made some other good signings about Bjornsson coming in uh, on right wing yeah. and um, Jesper Nielsen coming in on the line. Um, but Sextrup is uh, leaving to go to um, Magdeburg. I don't think it's actually that that much of an upgrade. Um, so Sextrup was really, really amazing this season. But I think Palmerson adds another dimension. Yeah. Also bringing in Martin Larson from Leipzig on the right back position. So oh, yeah. decent, decent squad again this year. And yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to underestimate them anymore. Do it at our peril, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah I just I think it'd be interesting to see from an Albert perspective can p- the players who really stood up like this season like for example like Sandel can they do it again next season I think is a big question because I remember we were talking about it before with someone like uh, Mads coming in next season isn't, isn't it um, Mad- Mads Mincelarsson yeah. um, or there was talk not, of him coming set, in possibly yeah, not set yeah. but I mean we were saying it as well how maybe on the back of last season there may be, you may be thinking, do you, do you even need a player like Madman Larson on the performances of like the likes of, uh, Claire and Sandell in the backcourt? So it's going to be interesting to see, can they, can they be consistent next season with their performances? Cause I think they kind of, for a lot of people came out of nowhere and, uh, really surprised people with how consistent they were. But I think, you know, the, those two players, especially Claire and Sandell have just been outstanding and that includes the world championship. And now they have the chance to kind of solidify their place at the top of handball with the Olympics as well. Um, it, it's, it's funny. You look, you looked at that, uh, Swedish squad and in the world championship, looking at that squad, you're like, Oh, this is a strange 
team. There's no like Lucas Nielsen. There's no there's no Nielsens at all. <laughs> and now you're who are these guys? And then you you look at, at the squad now and you're like, oh well, this is a, you know Sandel and Claire either side of Godfrey'son. That's that's looking really good. Um, but mm. also just we we haven't quite mentioned it, but. What do you think of the wild cards that were awarded for the Champions League? You mean the upgrades? The upgrades, yes. <laughs> the uh, who were the upgrades so, again? The upgrades were Veshram and Montpellier as the second place teams, mm. um, as well as Meshkov Brest, Dinamo Bucharesti, Matoor, and Elverum also got in. So the, the kind of the only change being as uh, Celia uh, being replaced by Dinamo Bucharesti in this um, upgrade category and then uh, Montpellier instead of Nantes. So we do have a very similar lineup to last year. And maybe the ones that surprised me was maybe Elverum being given another chance here to prove themselves and have a chance to qualify from this group in the top six. Looking at the teams that didn't make it, like Gyogi, okay, not the biggest surprise. Poitsk not making it, that, they'll be very disappointed, I think, having reached the uh, EHF finals the, in the second tier competition. Uh, sporting, not a big uh, surprise. Granny Vlandia, also not huge. Cadetan, I think that was Brian's kind of wild card, wild card, <laughs> you know, the one he, he thought would come out of nowhere. They would have had a decent chance as well in Sevahoff who I think wanted to, or they made the upgrade request, but won't be so disappointed. I think they're building for the future. Yeah, I think there are maybe two, two contentious uh, spots there in the end, but overall it's yeah, not a big surprise and not too many changes, like you said. Yeah, I think yeah, for me, Elverum was kind of a bit of a surprise as well, especially because they've lost a few players. Blondes and uh, Abalo have left as well. Um, they haven't really kind of reinforced the squad too much, but they, of course, had quite. Uh, they put on a good show the last time they were in it, you know, playing in that big arena. So I think that that probably got them over the line. Um, yeah, I suppose the, it it does raise this whole thing of the the Super League again when you look at the teams in the competition this year. It's quite funny because really, even though this is now the third iteration of this format, it really feels like the second season. So last season was the first full season that we had after the cancelled season. And um, yeah, it it is, you have to look at it and say, you know, will we get bored of these big groups eventually? You know, maybe not yet, but if we see the same same teams playing against each other in a couple of years' time again um, with not too much on the line. That that was one of the criticisms that, you know, with a group of eight and only two teams getting knocked out, how much is on the line? I, I do have a counter-argument to that, um, being that Barcelona finished top of the group and had a very favourable draw to get to the final four and into the final where they played Meshkov-Brest in the quarterfinal and Elverum in the last 16. So that's a much easier route to the final four than um, a team like Kiel got where they, they got 
Zegget in the last 16 and PSG afterwards. So it does matter, but yeah, how much is on the line in these groups it is a question. And over on the, the women's side, quick look at the two groups there. In Group A, it's Brest, FTC, Budichnost, uh, CSM Bucharest, the Borussia Dortmund, Rostov, Esbjerg, who have got in with Henny Reistad, which I think is a, a big boost for them. Podravka as well in Group A. Then in Group B, CSKA, Vipers, Krim, Odense, Jura, Metz, Kastamonu from Turkey coming in for the first time, and Sevahov from Sweden and Gastamonu basically taking all of Buduchnos' best players. <laughs> basically, the four or five of them have transferred over, which makes me really worry about Buduchnos this season. Uh, they're basically lacking all of the established uh, Montenegrin players who went back a couple of seasons ago to kind of build up for the Olympics. We had Maida Mehmedovic on the podcast a couple of years ago explaining exactly that. That's where they were going back. Uh, and now that the Olympics are happening this summer... They're taking on a new project uh, afterwards. So, yeah, we can talk more about that later in the summer. And I think uh, we should move on now to uh, the current handball and the upcoming handball. What do you want first, beach or Olympics? Uh, go on, Chris. You're, you're in Bulgaria. You're yes. on the beach here. You have the sunshine in your face. Tell us what it feels like to be at a, a beach handball tournament. <laughs> not not going to lie, lads. It's fucking great. <laughs> it's really good times. Uh, the <laughs> under-17 beach handball Euro just happened over the weekend. I arrived on Friday. I was commentating on Saturday and Sunday. And yeah, Sunday in particular, the finals day was brilliant. for The, uh, the atmosphere for the, the whole day was really good. And the stands were completely packed with fans and the players from all the other teams for the final two games. And what a final two games as well. For those of you who haven't uh, watched, I definitely recommend taking a look back. And the, the women's one, first of all, with uh, with Hungary coming from behind in the first set, or completely outplayed by the Netherlands, uh, somehow managed to find a way to turn things around. They had one player in particular, uh, Dorothea Zentai, who scored 22 points in the final, uh, pushed it into a shootout, and uh, they won that shootout 7-4. And it's... It's the thing we all know about beach handball where at the end of the day, as the supposedly weaker team, all you need is 10 good minutes to win a set and then you have a chance in the shootout. And uh, I feel really bad for the Dutch players. They were great in the first set, but there were really good tactical changes to turn it around for the Hungarians. And it was a very similar situation in the men's final, which uh, Brian has seen the shootout and the second set. If you haven't definitely watch this. I'm telling you, every single person listening, right? Just go back and watch Sweden versus Spain. You will not regret it. Best shootout in handball I've ever seen. Any kind of handball, any situation. Beats Hampus Vanna lobbing the goalkeeper. Uh, in the <laughs> and it genuinely does. You go and watch, the, watch it now. Re- stop the recording. Watch it and then come back to us. Yeah, it was Spain who... Look like, despite being 15, 16, 17-year-olds were playing like men, like you could see the how this new wave of beach handball players are coming through, these players who are not just figuring it out as they go. They know how the sport is played, and they're going to kind of revolutionize the sport, I think, in a few years to come. Uh, some of the players were magnificent, one in particular, Joaquin Varro, who is going to be a superstar. He 
can do things I think half of the men's players playing over the next week can't do, uh, which is really impressive to see. And Spain looked like they had uh, Sweden on the ropes. They uh, tactically outclassed them. Sweden had one player in particular, Victor Paldanius, who was like the he was the top scorer of the whole championship. Uh, what's so funny? <laughs> I, I just love the level of detail you are going into the <laughs> under seventeen beach handball. It was so good. This is, <laughs> this is the nichest content of all time. It is the nichest content, but I swear to God, like one hundred percent of you listening have to go back and watch this final. Like they're under seventeens, but they were playing like seniors. It was so good to see. So completely like took out Sweden's best player. Uh, Sweden were lost in the first set, and Sweet and uh, Spain won it quite handily. Then uh, they managed to turn it around. Then Jesper Knutsen, who is playing for the men's team, was my old indoor coach, and is just like the brains of Swedish beach handball. Uh, managed to figure out a way to break the Spanish guys down. They hadn't lost a set all week, so they played seven matches. Spain won every single set in it. This is the first time they lost a set in the final, which went to a golden point. So I think it was 26-26. Next, uh, next score wins. And there is that boy, Victor Paldanius, who'd been mar- man-marked for the whole game. He scored the golden point, went to the shootout. And then the shootout lasted 22 penalties. 22 <laughs> Nobody missed until like halfway through the second round of them. Sweden lobbed the keeper with a, a shot, bounced off the sand and wide. So Spain only needed one point to win the game and win the championship. And then their defender who was put in goal, Oscar Johansson, I said it in the commentary, move aside Runa Damka. There's a new Superman in handball. His name is Oscar Johansson because not once but twice did he come flying out of the goal and intercept the ball which then gave Sweden a chance to win it. And uh, yet again, Victor Paldanius needed one point to score to win it. He did exactly that. 19-18 in the shootout. It was phenomenal. And I think looking at your face, Alex, I've now convinced you. Yeah. <laughs> but it was great. And what, what the most unusual thing about it, the whole thing was when you, when you have a penalty shootout, it's often the people who miss the shots who were most disappointed but it was actually the Spanish goalkeeper who had his passes intercepted who seemed most distraught after the game which is an unusual thing that you don't get really in other penalty shootouts that's that's the thing because that the guy who who had his passes intercepted was the MVP of the whole thing Joaquin Vara the guy I told you who's going to be the superstar he was the one doing the passes sorry Alex for spoiling it but it's uh it's still amazing <laughs> I will check it out so Sweden win it without having played any competitive games before this championship had just been training in Sweden for the last couple of years and uh, put something special together. So good for them. Right. On to the senior competition <laughs> then. Maybe yeah. in a little less detail. <laughs> 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 but um, who, who's, who's looking hot? Um, who, who are the teams to contend with? I saw that. Um, it was a Danish team that won the EBT championship. Um, mm. Hey, they, they won that championship. So does that kind of automatically make Denmark favourites for this championship? Yeah, I think so. On the, on the men's side, yeah. Uh, hey won it. And that was without Martin Vilstrup, who we had on the podcast a couple of years ago after Denmark won it. Uh, so he's come back. He's coming into the team now. And 
I think they have to be seen as the favourites uh, based on that and based on them being the reigning champions. Uh, the thing about this is I don't have as much detail. Now I'm an expert on under-17s, <laughs> but I have to go and watch some of these teams play test matches later on today to actually get a feel for who's going to be playing. So, um, yeah, it's 18 teams in the men's side, four groups. Uh, I think Norway, Denmark, Spain are all in one group. They'll all, the three teams qualify. I think uh, they'll all be contenders. Uh, France have gotten better over the last couple of years. Sweden, who've been a contender for a while, they've got a few changes as a team. Maybe not going to be such a big contender. You've got Hungary and Croatia, who are just always good. Um, so really, everyone I've talked to, all of the players, they're like, they don't know who's really the favourites. There's maybe seven or eight teams that can uh, can really contend for it. And I think that's quite exciting. Uh, shout out to the Netherlands, because Alex, you and I have played with and against some of the players playing for the Netherlands this week. And Steen Steenhuis, who runs the uh, Dutch handball podcast, Spielmacher, is playing for the Dutch national team. So we've got to give some love to the Dutch team and to uh, Steen this week, although they're in a very tough group and may not qualify. Uh, on the women's side, 17 teams, also in four groups. The... Uh, yeah, Danes also the champions. They've got a lot of changes. Uh, they're in a group with Spain who'll probably go through as well. Norway and Hungary in a group together. They're usually major contenders as well. The Norwegians have been training a lot by themselves. And then the uh, the Dutch, I think, uh, bronze medalist two years ago. They'll have a very good chance. The It's hard to know. I mean, the, the Germans, and we saw that with the under-17s. They've been building like a very specific set of players for beach handball and at the under 17s if you have a look at some of the games the men and women they're all bigger than i am even though in in defense all of the female players 16 17 year old year olds are like 188 189 so they're making these really long and tall players just really difficult to get by and then putting the their skillful handball players in uh in attack so maybe they're going to do that for the seniors as well but uh, it's going to be exciting all the way through the sunday on EHF TV, on lots of TV networks have picked it up, uh, which is really exciting as well. So a lot of interest in this championship. Uh, weather is great. We're right beside the sea, putting on a lot of sunscreen. Hope I won't get burnt. Uh, happy days. <laughs> Sounds like I want to be there, and I'm extremely jealous. Yeah. But um, yeah, good, good luck. Uh, looking forward to seeing it. And that will be the next uh, competition before the big competition of the summer and that is the olympics which yeah. start in less than two weeks time so pretty exciting all the teams are in their training camps the squads have been announced this olympics it's been announced that there's not going to be any fans at mm. the stadium so i think that will definitely impact handball quite a bit i, I think that's it's definitely one of those sports that does benefit from that Olympics buzz um, in the tournament. But it's lining up for a really, really interesting tournament. Yeah, I've got, I've got the groups to hand here. I'll run them through. So on the uh, women's side in Group A, it's Netherlands, Montenegro, Norway, Japan, Korea, and Angola. In Group B, it's Spain, the Russian Olympic Committee, Hungary, Sweden, France, and Brazil. Then on the men's side in Group A, Norway, France, Germany, Brazil, Spain, and Argentina. 
And then in Group B, Denmark, Sweden, Portugal, Japan, Egypt, Bahrain. Top four qualify from each group. So is it going to be a full European affair? In terms of the medals? In terms of the medals. Yeah, I think you look, you look at the men's Group A. Uh, I mean, that's probably, that's a really, really strong group. And you have to you have to feel sorry for a little bit for Brazil and Argentina. I'm not saying Brazil and Argentina aren't going to get out of the group, but that's a really, really tough mix to be in there. But even that tie alone, Brazil versus Argentina, I think it's the first time they've ever faced at the Olympics. And even that has a lot of history behind it. So like, I think that group A is just so tasty. It's unbelievable. And you've uh, Nik- Nikola Karabatic obviously getting back into the national team after his long injury. And we saw him briefly at the at the final four. Bjarte Meerhold, his last handball um, ever, retiring after this for Norway. So yeah, that's that's a that's a tasty group. There was a little three-way competition over the weekend. Uh, it's always hard to look, to take too much out of these pre-championship games, but uh, Germany, Egypt, and Brazil all played against each other. Germany beat both Egypt and Brazil, and Egypt beat Brazil, and Brazil seemed to be the weakest of the three by a fair distance. And Argentina were good at that last World Championship in Egypt. They uh, remember they were on the edge, basically, of uh, on the verge of qualifying for the quarterfinals. To me, they feel like the the favourites from Brazil and Argentina. And then there's the question of can they knock off one of those four European teams: Norway, France, uh, Germany, or Spain? No. Short answer: No. <laughs> <laughs> They're just solid teams. All, all of those. Um, yeah. I don't know who. I I don't know. No, Norway coming in first Olympics, they're they're going to be um flying through it. France seem to be getting it together a little bit more. Um and Karbatic is back. They they also had a little tournament um where they played against Egypt um and Karbatic looked really really good they won by one goal uh, in the last um minutes but um egypt also looked looked pretty good but yeah i don't know it's a it, it's a tough ask i think at least we're guaranteed one uh, non-european team on from group b uh, because yeah. we have japan egypt and bahrain playing um question is you know what can Japan cause a bit more of an upset? You know, they, they did look good in the last World Championships, but kind of the, they didn't quite um, get there. Um, I, I think in that group, Portugal will be feeling very confident um, to get to that quarterfinal stage and potentially even play for a medal. But in my mind, the two strongest teams in the competition are in that group and that is Denmark and Sweden and I have I don't know I'm all on the Swedish hype train I, I really think they have an amazing team that's fully balanced and they have the most informed handball player in the world at the moment in um Jim Gottfriedsson um to kind of drive drive them I'm pretty excited you don't see Egypt getting some revenge on Denmark after the World Championship, after probably one of the best games we saw all year. I think Egypt will perform well, and I think they will probably qualify um, in this group. Of course, they don't have the the big home advantage that they had in the World Championship, which will make things a little bit more difficult, but they're a very, very good team. I think, you know, again, they are the team that will 
potentially vie for that non-European medal spot. I actually see them beating quite a lot of teams in that Group A. Exciting to see what happens there, but I think it's going to be a Scandi affair again. Are they play against each other, Denmark and Sweden? We're recording this on a Monday lunchtime. They play on Monday evening in a test match, so we can talk about that next week as well as we look into the Olympics in a bit more detail. Portugal and Spain played a couple of test matches over the weekend and uh, split them one win each. So nice for Portugal as well to get a win over Spain, which is, uh, we haven't seen them do that really at all in recent years. They haven't even really played in recent years since Portugal became the team they are at the moment. And on the women's side, Hungary looking in really good form. They beat Montenegro and Brazil recently. Norway and France uh, drew a game after Norway won the day before 30-21. So Norway looking in uh, in hot form there, as are Sweden, who beat both the Netherlands, who have Nika Kroot back for one last hurrah with the Dutch team for the Olympics. And they beat Russia as well, Sweden, uh, with Anna Kareva having a bit of an injury scare, but she is in the squad for them. So hopefully, and uh, we assume that she's fine for that. I mentioned it before, the, the group's there could be a bit more Europe or non-European impact here. We have like in Group A, Japan, Korea, and Angola uh, competing, particularly Korea uh, and Angola, who seem to to really build up to the Olympics. And if you remember Korea, the World Championship in twenty nineteen in Japan, were really giving these European t- teams a, a hell of a time. So uh, we could see them really make an impact here, at least go through to the quarterfinals if they can. Uh, get victories over Angola and Japan and then over on in Group B is a bit of a bloodbath with Spain the Russian Olympic Committee Hungary who I mentioned are in good form Sweden who are in good form France and then Brazil and Brazil yeah maybe the uh, the odd one out here it's going to be like a, a last hurrah for a lot of their players as well tough to see them make any kind of impact there so we'll leave it there we next week we're going to sit down and have another podcast where we go into the olympics in a little bit more detail and maybe have a guest on from someone on site in in tokyo so until then cheerio Mm -hmm.